If you have your Bibles, as I hope you do, go ahead and turn to the book of Psalm. We're going to be in Psalm 88 today. Uh, This is the last uh, sermon we're going to do in the Psalms this summer. Uh, beginning in September, we're going to start a series in James. Uh, so I encourage you, go ahead and begin reading the book of James. Next week will kind of be an introduction to the book, and then the week after that we'll actually begin digging into James. But I encourage you, go ahead and begin reading that book now. Uh, but, but today we're in Psalm 88, and this is a unique psalm. It is a lament psalm. And if you remember, Chris Gorman preached on a lament psalm a couple weeks ago, and he kind of walked us through them. Lament psalms are one that addresses sorrow and pain. They all follow a similar pattern, and one of the key characteristics is that they all contain hope. So as they're they're looking at the sorrow and the pain and the misery that we so often experience in this world, they always direct us uh, to hope, to an idea that God is hearing and He will respond But Psalm 88, and there's one other psalm, and they are unique lament psalms in that there is no hope in them. Darkness surrounds this entire psalm. It's filled with trial, pain, suffering, torment, and misery. Derek Kidner, a commentary, he wrote, this is the saddest prayer of the Psalter. Yay, that's what we're looking at today. And you're like, man, I wish my friends would have made it for this one. Um, But there's goodness in this psalm. And and I chose it because I really wanted us to see the truth that is here. This psalm addresses a reality that some of us know all too well. That Christianity is not pain-free. Life is hard. There are times we go through very difficult seasons and there's times we do not see any hope dawning in the distance you might be here today and and this describes you you're you're in this long season one christian wrote you are either in a trial going into a trial or coming out of a trial so just wherever you're at today just know trials are are what surround us and if we're not in one right now praise god grow in the faith uh, so it would be strengthened for the time that we do what we see as we come through god's word is life under the sun is not always the sunshine and butterflies that we hope it is and so today i want us to see the ray of hope we do have when it looks like darkness is all that does surround us and so if you have your bibles i'm going to go and ask you to stand we're going to read chapter 88 uh, one thing we do here at Timberline is we read, or is we stand at the reading of God's Word. We do this uh, because we believe God's Word comes with His full authority. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It comes with the purpose of correcting and training us in righteousness. And so we stand to simply remind us, remind us of His Word uh, and to give it the honor it deserves. Verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like, the one, like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the region dark and deep. 
Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread up my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companion has become darkness. Let's pray. Father, Father, we come to you now. This is a, This is a hard psalm. It hits a topic that that we know, that we experience, but we so often don't want to think about, we don't want to dwell upon. So Father, I pray as, as we look at the darkness that so often surrounds us, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you give us wisdom, that you would enlighten our hearts, that we would see the hope that we have in you because of your Son, Jesus who has conquered the grave, who promises life. Lord, give us eyes to see the truth of your word today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, What I want to do is I just want to begin by outlining the psalm. I just kind of want to walk through it. So it begins with this crying out in the darkness. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. This is how most lament psalms all begin. The psalmist is crying out to God. In fact, uh, he cries out day and night. We see that in verse 1, in verse 9, in verse 13. He calls out constantly to God. And according to verse 15, if you look there, afflicted and close to my death from my youth up. So, so what happens, he's saying, I've been calling to God for a long time. Time. This season, this trial has been going on from his youth. So there begins with this crying out in the darkness, and then he begins to, to describe the darkness for us. And, and the, the structure is a little hard to necessarily follow. So I think verses 3 through 12, for the most part, give us this description. And I want us to see the progression of misery as he as he gives it to us. Look at verse 3. He says, My soul is full of troubles. That's where he starts. Next, in verse 3, he'll say, My life draws near to Sheol, meaning I feel like death is coming close. Verse 4, he says he is counted as the dead. So now he feels, I am dead. I am as good as dead. Verse 7, God's wrath is all upon him. This is a man who is completely miserable. He lives out what we see in Psalm 42, 3, where it says, My tears have been my food day and and night and to add to the misery if you look at verses 8 and 18 all his friends have left him so he's alone now we don't know 
what the psalmist is going through. And one of the really good things when we go through the psalms is that we don't always know the, the specific situation that has caused it to be written, which is helpful because it, helps, it lets us be um, broad in its application. And so we don't know exactly what has happened here. Possibly he's experienced a multiplicity of trials. Maybe it's one just very long trial. Whatever it is, it's enough that his friends have left him. Now they may attribute this trial he's in as a consequence of sin, and they simply want to stay away. If you remember in John chapter 2, Jesus is about to heal the man who's born blind, and the Pharisees say, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. So they go, there has to be a reason, a consequence for this. Or, in the book of Job, we see that Job's friends come around him, and Job is suffering, and they basically say, it's probably your fault. You probably have done something wrong, and now God is punishing you. And so a common thought was that um, suffering comes only as a consequence of sin, which surely is at times a consequence, but at times we know it's simply a thing that happens in this life. So possibly that's why his friends have left him, or or maybe just the cost of friendship has become too much. All he talks about is his pain and his sorrow. He is a downer to be around, so his friends have simply left him. They say, "It's, it's too much. I can't be around this guy anymore. So regardless of why, we see that he's miserable and he's alone. And to add to the misery, we see in verses 13 and 14, the psalmist feels like God has left him also. So darkness surrounds him, his friends have left him, and now he says, God has surely left me also. It's as if his prayers are going upward, but there's this invisible ceiling that they're hitting and they're not going through. Have you ever felt that? Like they're just, you keep praying the same thing over and over and over, and you wonder, do, do they get there? Look at verse 14, he says, Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? So who is this guy? Who is this guy that experiences just this this suffering, this darkness? Where in verse 18 he says, my companion, my friend, is darkness. It's the only thing that stays close to me. Well, in the title we see that his name is He-Man. Not the one that battled Skeletor. Do you guys remember that? I had the castles. Man, I, man I, I played with those a whole lot. My guys, anyways, I'll tell you all about that later. Probably not applicable at the moment. Um, but very likely, this is the man that's mentioned in First Chronicles 6 and in other parts of Chronicles that David has appointed to lead all of Israel into the worshiping of God. So he was a worship leader. We read that he had 14 kids, but that's enough to cause some issues. Um, But he is a leader of God's people. He's a godly man whose purpose with the body of, of, with, with um, with God's people is to lead them into worshiping and to grow in their knowledge of God. This is a man who knows God. This is a man who has tasted the goodness of God. And at the same time, we see that he's in deep misery. So one thing we we can take from here and from other parts of Scripture is that darkness knows no boundaries. I hope you know growing in your faith does not prevent you from experiencing suffering. 
I think we think that. The prosperity gospel would say that it does. Well, if you do this, then God will surely give you all these good things. But what we have here is a man who follows God, who leads others into the worship of God, and yet he is greatly suffering. Suffering has no boundaries. The rich, the poor, the godly, the ungodly, the popular, the unpopular, the Democrat, the Republican, the white, the black. We all experience dark nights of the soul. No one is exempt from these nights. Now it's at this point, like in other lament psalms, we're, we're waiting for, for the line that reads, but joy comes in the morning. You know, like, like we're waiting for that. Or if you just go back uh, to like Psalm 86.5, which is another lament, we read there, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. There is none like you among the gods. O Lord, there are, nor are there any works like yours. That's what we want. A guy who all of a sudden says, okay, there's darkness, but God, you are good. I know you're answering me. You're steadfast. You're faithful. Your love is coming around me. But we, we don't have that line in this psalm. This is a dark psalm. There is no words of hope this psalm reminds us of the cruelty of life and the pain we so often endure one commentator said whoever devises from scripture a philosophy in which everything turns out right has to begin by tearing this page this psalm out of that volume and 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 i know we've talked about it quite a bit here there's a prosperity gospel out there today that says, look, God is here for your immediate joy right now. He wants to give you everything you want. Your land, your possessions, your happiness. And if you do this, this, and this, He will give you everything you want. And if you don't have it, well, you just simply need to have more faith. That is a lie. And that is running rampant here in America. And it is going crazy in Africa and other parts of the world as well. What we see here is life does not always appear to have a happy ending. Just yesterday, um, I, I went and did a funeral for a father who had buried his son. I can't even imagine the pain of, of, of that. Sometimes all we see is darkness. And any ray of hope is simply too distant and too dim to even perceive. Have you been there? Like some of you know this. Some of you have, have tasted this darkness. Some of you are maybe in this darkness. You know the bitterness that this brings within the soul. And then what we have is, is there's this continuing in the darkness as we make our way through the psalm. From verses 13 to 18. Verse 15, the psalmist looks back at his youth. I only see pain and misery that way. And in verses 16 and 17, he kind of looks at the present and the future, and he basically sees, all I see is misery before me. Look at verse 16. He feels like God's wrath is sweeping upon him. It's like an enemy that is attacking his very soul. There is no hope in, in, in sight. Before me, pain. Now, pain. Probably just pain and misery in the future. And you get the sense he's blaming God, don't you? Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. Verse 15, I suffer your terrors. I don't think he's necessarily praising God for his sovereignty at these moments. 
I think he's blaming God in all of his sovereignty. The psalmist feels the weight of the darkness at all times. He feels it in the morning. He feels it in the noon. It's in the evening. It's there in the gut, and it affects everything that you taste. It taints every emotion that you have, and he's unable to escape it. And this, this is the last psalm we chose to end with for the, for the summer. So what do we do with a psalm like this, right? Like, like, why do we even have a psalm like this? Like, is this why we read the Bible to see things like this? So let us be reminded first that this psalm, like all of Scripture, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We don't have this psalm by accident. God's not going, oh, that one slipped by. I got to do something about that. We don't have this psalm by accident. It's given to us for our instruction for our training, for correction. So, so how does it instruct us? How does it correct us? What is it doing? Well, we, we can say several things. The psalm reminds us of the dark, of the dark, of the dark, that darkness is a reality in this world. It reminds us of this. Probably everyone here, you've experienced dark nights. Again, like we've said, maybe some of you are in a season of darkness right now. As we've said, sometimes we suffer because of actions that we have done. After all, our actions do have consequences. But possibly you're also suffering because we simply live in a sinful world. You've been diagnosed with a difficult disease. Perhaps finances have been hard for a very long time, and you constantly find that you're trying to make ends meet, and you're just getting tired of watching every single penny. Maybe you're in a hard marriage and it seems to only be getting more difficult. Maybe you have a child that has created many difficulties in your life. Perhaps you've struggled with years of depression, of self-worth, anxiety. I mean, we could just make a list of things that so often attack us. Can you echo these words? Verse 4, I'm a man who has no strength. Do you know what that's like to have no strength? Have you been there where you just, I don't want to get up. I don't, I don't want to go for it. I, I don't want to go to work. I don't want to go see these people. Verse 9, my, my eyes grow dim through sorrow. Do, do you know what that's like? We're just, you're, you're heavy with tears. You burst out into pain and, and tears on a regular basis. You don't even know how they keep coming. You're saying, surely they should be dried up by now. The psalm reminds us the reality of darkness in this world. The psalm also reminds us that sometimes all we see is that darkness. Like, I, I think there's this idea um, that, that still is prevalent, which is, is, is sad, but still prevalent in Christianity today, that somehow, like, we need to clean ourselves up before we come to God. Like, you probably have heard something along the lines of, you know, on Sunday mornings when you come, you can just check your problems at the door. Like, have you ever heard some notion of that try that let me know how that goes like how do you do that like how do you like if we could do that we would do that at home and everywhere else right like there's no checking your emotions well, i'll just take my problems off i'm at church now like that that doesn't happen that's an impossibility and, and when we say that we're, we're thinking what like god doesn't want to hear them god doesn't know like we're not allowed to come into god's presence with with difficulties in our life God knows that there are times that we see the darkness. This psalm proves it. 
He knows that there's times we struggle to believe. Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28 says, For those who love God, all things work together for good. We love that song or that verse, right? It's an amazing truth that strengthens us. But guess what? God knows sometimes that we struggle to actually believe that truth. Because we're in this trial, and it's been so long, that we're going, I, how can this possibly be good? Many of you know the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's thrown um, into jail because of a crime he did not do. And then he's forgotten about in jail for, for several years when, when the man who, who knew of his gifting could have gotten him out much sooner. Surely he wrestled with darkness. Surely he wrestled, God, what is happening? Are you there? Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, he experienced the darkness that torments the soul. The wicked queen Jezebel has has killed many of the prophets, and she's now bent on killing Elijah. He's He's in her crosshairs. And he cries out to God in 1 Kings 19.4, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. Just kill me. I, I do not want to be here. If you go into Jeremiah, he cries out that, that was very similar words. He's a prophet chosen by God to go to God's people. And God basically tells them, they're not going to listen to you. And guess what? They don't listen to him. And they... Some of them hate him, they persecute him, they throw him into jail. He cries out to God, I wish I was dead. The book of Job is all about a man wrestling with pain and agony of losing his family and his possessions. So he is, God knows our pain, our suffering, our agonizing. He knows the darkness. This psalm tells us this. It's one of the beauties of this psalm is that it is so dark, but it's in God's Word. So when we're in this season, we don't have to go, God God doesn't know about this one. God has left me, surely. So what do we do? So how, how do we go forward? How do we wrestle with a psalm like this? Well, when we read our Bibles, we need to read them correctly. And yes, there are wrong ways to read our Bibles. Uh, one thing we want to do is always understand the historical setting. So especially when we're in the Old Testament, uh, we want to understand, okay, what is happening? What led up to this? Um, what's coming after it? What is the situation that has, co- that has arisen to this text being in the Scripture? We want to understand that. Now in a psalm like this, we're not really given context. So that's a little bit harder to do. But secondly, we want to know then, how does the gospel of Jesus inform how we understand this text? You see, the gospel is a light that shines backwards over the entire Bible, revealing its true meaning. And what that means is, the only way we really understand the Old Testament is when we see how it connects to Jesus, and what he has done for us at the cross, and that brings us into his presence, everlasting, uh, for the glory of God. So we always want to go, okay, so we have this psalm, and we want to try to gain our understanding of it. And once we've done that, once we've seen, okay, what, is there anything else I can see? And then we want to come to the New Testament and go, okay, based upon the knowledge that we have here of who Jesus is and what he has done in God's plan, how do we understand this psalm? So does that make sense? First, understand historical setting. What is the meaning here? What is it to, how would the initial readers have understood this text? And then we want to step 
forward into the New Testament and we'll say, okay, based upon the, the fuller revelation of, Jesus, uh, of God through Jesus Christ, now how do we see this psalm? And so when we do that, we see several truths. Number one, suffering is an instrument that God uses. And when we're in the New Testament, we see this constantly. We could go to texts like 1 Peter chapter 2, 21, where we see suffering is a means in which God uses to advance the gospel. We could go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 24, where that might be chapter 1, verse 24, where we see suffering as a means in which we help others to know the very sufferings of Jesus on the cross. But let me point out one we forget sometimes. Hebrews chapter 2.10. Let me read this. It says, For it was fitting that he, this is God, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, this is Jesus, perfect through suffering. So, saying, it is fitting that God, who created all things, makes Jesus, the founder of salvation, perfect through suffering. Now, the word perfect here does not mean that Jesus was lacking something. It's not actually meaning that he was imperfect in some way. But rather it means qualified. And so what what he's showing is because Jesus suffered, he was qualified to be our substitute. Suffering was the means that Jesus was able to provide forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus, in Jesus' suffering, he became like us, experiencing the darkness of the world, the pain, the misery of this world, so that in our suffering, we would become like him. Do you know that? He comes, and in his suffering, he becomes like us. So that when we are in suffering, it's a means in which he's refining us and growing us, so we become like him. Now, so often when the darkness sets upon our soul, we're tempted to feel like God has forgotten us or has abandoned us. We think suffering is an indication of God's absence. But that's not true at all. That's not true at all. We see all throughout Scripture that God is with Daniel in the lion's den. He's with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He's with his people as they suffer. Rather, in suffering, God is transforming us more into the image of His Son. Suffering is used uh, to expose the gap between what we truly believe and what we only think we believe. Does that make sense? And the point of exposing this gap is that it would be narrowed. Many of you might know uh, or heard of the Christian Joni Erickson Tata. Have you heard of her? Amazing Christian. Uh, At age 18... She dove into the Chesapeake Bay, and she snapped her spinal cord, and she instantly became a quadriplegic. She's about 70 years old now, and she's had just amazing Christian ministry where she has spoken much on suffering, on pain, and the wrestling with God through the agony of this this incident that's happened in her life. And she, she wrote, My suffering has taught me to be done with sin. Putting behind me peevish, small-minded, self-focused Joni to mature into the Joni he has destined me to be, honed and polished by years of quadriplegia. God cares most not about making my life happy, healthy, and free of trouble, but about teaching me to hate my transgressions and to keep me growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. 
So here she is, 70 years old now, looking back, and she sees that this incident, this tragic incident that happened at 18, God has used to, to refine her, to grow her more into the image of Christ. Now, she is not saying if she's back at 18 years, she would just repeat the same incident. She's not saying she would willingly jump back into suffering, but what she's saying is this incident that was a tragedy to have happened, God has used as an incredible blessing in my life to help me to hate sin, to draw me close to His grace and help me understand how much I need His grace each and every day. And this takes us to our next point, that suffering is the path to God's supreme glory and our everlasting joy. Joni points out, God has something much greater in mind than our immediate temporal happiness and good circumstances. And we must know that. We can state that as Christians. I think many of us, if we were quizzed, does God want only your immediate joy right now? Most of us say no. No, He's more after our our eternal joy, but we need to believe that. We need to be rooted in that truth. Because God has in mind His supreme glory, and in His glory, we find our ultimate, everlasting joy. God wants you to be completely satisfied in Him and to forever drink from the fount of His supreme glory. He wants the river of life flowing through you. But because of sin, we get distracted from God. And when that happens, what we often do is we take good things in this world and we turn them into great things, meaning we we transform them into idols. We look at them for our source of joy, for our source of identity. We can do that with just about everything. We can do that with a spouse, with our children, with our home, with our finances, with our friends, with our comfort, our possessions, our bodies, our health. All of those things can become idols. And all of those things can be amazingly good things that God gives us. But when we think that from them we get our joy, from them they're the source of our meaning and our life, then we turn them upside down into something they were never supposed to be. And so how is it that God shows the futility of these things? That they are good, but they're not great. They're not the source of our joy. They're not what sustains us. They're not what strengthens us. They're not what holds us. How is it that we learn our ultimate hope does not rest on the good gifts of this world? How is it that God shows His grace and His love and His presence is greater than anything this world has to offer? And the hard answer is it's often through suffering. It's as He begins to remove those things. And then all of a sudden that brings to light how we cling to them. And it's at that moment God, by His grace, is wanting to loosen our hands over the things of this world that we would be directed towards Him and we would see Him for His glory, for His good. This is the truth. We come in James. And we'll be here. We'll spend a lot of time in James coming up. But in James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And I love that he says various kinds because I think we want to find the loophole there. Well, not this one. Well, not, this, not Psalm 88. Not that trial. Not that trial. But count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That, so here's a purpose statement. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I hope you see, 
Do you see the heart of God right here? He's saying, I bring the trials and the dark nights as a means of working in you, that you'd be perfect, that your joy would be maximized and He would be glorified. Now you might say, I don't know if I like that though. I mean, that suffering hurts. This is a quote from Philip Yancey. I I thought it was a good quote. He says, who would complain if God allowed one hour of suffering an entire life of comfort? Probably none of us would complain, right? You're going to live 80 years, I'm going to give you one hour. Okay, fine, I can endure that. Yet Yet we bitterly complain about a lifetime that includes suffering when that lifetime is but a mere hour in eternity. I like that. Again, what the Bible does, it helps us see the grander perspective of things. It helps us see the truth of things. You see, according to God's word, and in fact, in James chapter 4, we see that our life is but a mist. It's here one moment and then gone. It's merely an hour that we live here on this earth. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.18, he says that the suffering that he is experiencing is light and momentary. And that's not to trivialize it. It's not to say whatever we're going through doesn't matter, isn't heavy, but it's saying it's light and momentary and the grand scheme of all of eternity and it is being used to prepare for us a weight of eternal glory, meaning it's being used to transform me into the image of His Son that I would be maximized in my joy as God is glorified in all that occurs. I pray that we would know this as a church. It is, it is one thing to talk about these things when we're not suffering. It's an entirely different thing to go through these when we're in the heat of the battle, when the darkness is all around us. It is important that we grow in our knowledge, that we get rooted deep in the Word of God prior to the suffering coming. We must know these truths and understand these truths. And so how do we obey? How do we trust when the darkness comes? How do we keep this mindset that we count all things joy? This is where I think if we look back at Psalm 88, there is hope in this psalm. There are glimmers of hope, but they are there. So let's look back at this psalm. Look at verse 1. He he trusts that God alone saves. He says, O Lord, God of my salvation. Do not glaze over those words. Here is a man in in great agony where clearly he's blaming God for all of these things and yet he still comes to the very truth, God, you only are the one who saves. So while he's wrestling with darkness, he's experiencing darkness, he still comes to the fact, you only are the God of my salvation. There's no one else who can save me. He's angry, he's confused, but God is the one who, who he has hope in. You ever felt like that? You're angry, you're confused, but you come back to the truth. Okay, God is the one who can help. Look also, he knows that God is sovereign over all events. Verse 6, we see the psalmist is beginning to attribute all the darkness that has come upon him as coming from God, and I'm thinking he's primarily blaming God, but the underlying truth to his blame is what? That God is sovereign over these events. He knows the truth of Isaiah 45, 7, where God says, I form light. No one has a problem with that one, right? We're good there. We can just close the verse, put a period, 
But he go, keeps going. He says, and create darkness. I make well-being. We're good there, like period, close verse, right? But it keeps going. And create calamity. I form light and create darkness. I, am, I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Throughout God's Word, we see that God is sovereign over all events, the light and the dark. And He knows this. He's blaming God. So we need to understand that, that He's attributing the truth that God is sovereign even in His blaming and wrestling. Remember Job. Job says this in Job 2.10. After everything is taken away from him, he only has his wife, and his wife is, is not being helpful at this moment in his life. And he, and he turns and says to her, because she has said, why don't you just curse God, Job? And he says, you speak as one of the foolish women should speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, it takes us to a whole other can of worms, to getting into all of how God is sovereign over those things which we'll do another day. But what we see is a truth in Scripture that God is sovereign over all events. The Bible is clear. Nothing happens in which God is not sovereign, ruling over. Now that can be confusing and hard. But it's a truth we cling to because otherwise we begin to think that God is the one who keeps trying to come behind Satan and clean up the messes. Satan keeps messing up God's plans. So God's going, okay, man, I've got to wipe the table now. I've got to clean up the mess. I've got to pick up all the broken dishes. I've got to fix what he just did. But that's not the case. God's not trying to fix things. He has a plan that he rules over everything. Now, we also see, and I think this is probably one of the most powerful rays of hope that we have in this psalm, is that he's still trusting in God because he continues to pray. Verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Verse 9, my eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, Lord. Verse 13, O Lord, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Our prayer is a means of living out our faith. I hope you know this. So here we have a guy, he's wrestling, but he's still talking to God. You know, it's okay to wrestle with things that come into your life, but I encourage you, keep talking to God. Keep praying to God. You see, Satan wants to use trials in our life to draw us away from God. Jeremy, who was a guest preacher here a couple weeks ago, he brought forth this truth. Satan wants to use the trials that God brings into our life as a means of bringing us away from God, but God wants to use these trials as a means of drawing us closer to him. Satan would love nothing more than for you to stop praying. God's not there. Circumstances haven't changed yet. So he must not be listening. He must have abandoned me. But that's not the truth. Prayer is a powerful way in which we demonstrate that we know our God is good. He is listening. And he is with us. So I just want to close by just asking, so how does the psalmist become rooted in this knowledge? Now it's, it's a glimmer. I'll give you that. But, but how does that happen? Throughout the Old Testament, we see the power of God's Word. Throughout the New Testament, we see the power of God's Word. I, I would argue that the means in which he has rooted himself in the Word of God, so even rooted himself in the knowledge of God, is through his knowledge of the Word of God. Many of you know the parable of the sower. 
which Jesus gives in the New Testament. A farmer comes and he casts out the seed. Remember that? He casts out the seed. It lands on four different types of soil. There's uh, the rocky soil, the path, the thorny soil, and then there's the, the good soil. Do you know what the difference in between the soils is? Is how they respond to the word. Do they hear the word and do they obey the word? That's the difference in the soils. Matthew 13, this is what it says. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields it. In one case, a hundred. In another, sixty. In another, thirty. Knowing and obeying God's word is the means in which we grow in our faith. And it's by our faith and obedience to God's word that we grow deep roots so we can stand firm in our trials. I want to encourage you to be a student of the word. It's through God's word that we understand who he is, the character of God, the love of God, that we see the grand redemption plan of God, that we see how we use his suffering as the very means of providing salvation for all people. We know suffering is not useless. If there was no suffering, there would be no salvation because that is precisely what Jesus did on the cross. God's word is the means in which we grow deep roots in our faith. And I want to encourage you to study with others as well. It's good that we study individually, but it's good that we study with others also, that we help one another grow and understand the truths of this word. See, when we have deep roots, we're ready to combat the lies of sin. Sin says, you're being punished right now. But when we know Jesus at the cross absorbed the wrath of God for us, we know we're not being punished. Sin says your suffering is a sign of God's absence, is not caring for you. But we know God does care because, because his son Jesus has died on the cross. He did so that we would have life, that we'd be adopted into his family, and that his spirit would dwell within us, crying out that we are God's child. And we know that Jesus was forsaken on the cross, so we who believe in him would what? Would never be forsaken. So when we come into the word, it helps us combat the very lies that Satan wants us to believe so we'd move farther away from God. Tim Keller said this in his book on suffering. He wrote a great book on suffering, a really, really good one. And he says, the strength you need for suffering comes in the doing of the responsibilities and duties God requires. Shirk no commands of God. Read, pray, study, fellowship, serve, witness, obey. Do all your duties that you physically can, and the God of peace will be with you. So, to summarize Keller's words, the strength we need to endure the dark nights of the soul comes as we know and obey God's word. And we need to make sure we're knowing and growing now in the times we're not in the darkness so we're prepared for those seasons of darkness. I, I want to encourage you, there's, there's much we could say here individually, um, but I just want to turn just lastly, just think through this corporately as a body of believers many of us have united together in membership here membership is a powerful thing because it's it's us committing to one another for what for each other's good for the growth of one another's faith that we would spur one another on and so that when when one person begins to move away from the body and move away from the faith what is the rest of the body to do we're to move towards them because what we understand here is that darkness is a reality. Darkness is something that comes upon every single person. And Satan's goal is that it would be used to move us away. So this means when we see people going through dark nights, we should not step back and say, 
you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get too close, or, you know, I, I don't want to invade their privacy. I know they're kind of going through rough things right now. What should be our motive? What should be our action? It should be to move closer, to comfort them, to remind them of truth as we can, but to also let them know that darkness is a reality and it's okay to cry out to God. You don't have to dress up your prayers as we come before God. So I want to encourage us just as a body. I think we do this, but I just want us to to do it even more so that when we see those around us hurting, we're not to move away. We're to move towards them because we know what the enemy wants to do, but we know what God wants to do also. He's bringing this trial that we would grow closer in our relationship with him, that we'd experience a greater joy in him. One of the primary ways we do that and prepare for that is through the Word of God. So let me pray, and then we're going to come together as we celebrate uh, Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross through communion. Our Father, our Father, we thank You for this psalm. A psalm that we, in many ways, would be glad was not there. But at the same time, we are so glad that it is there because it meets us right where we're at at times. I pray that if there's anyone here who is in a season of darkness, is wrestling with truths like Romans 8, 28, God, are you there? Are you really working this for good? I don't see how. And they begin to question, Lord, I pray that, that you would comfort their hearts today through the truth of your word. I pray that you would draw them close to you because of your word. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that we would we would just bring that to those around us, Lord. I, we'd pray with one another. We'd counsel one another. We'd encourage one another here. Lord, we thank you that you are big enough that you don't just use the good events in life, but you are sovereign. You are powerful enough that you use the light and the darkness. That there is nothing outside of your control. And that, God, your perspective goes from past eternity to all of future eternity. You know exactly how things are working. You know the purpose behind of all things, and, and we don't. So, Lord, I just pray for the faith to trust in you when we have no idea what is happening. But we trust and be comforted that you are good, that you are loving, that you are gracious, that you are merciful, that you are present with us and guiding us and shepherding us that you are not absent from us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness, but that you are with us, and it's because of your presence we have no need to fear. Lord, I pray that we as a church, that we grow deep in our knowledge of your word, and not just knowing, but in knowing that, that goes into obedience, that we live out your word, that we grow these deep roots so that, Lord, we'd be prepared for those dark days. And Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that when we see others suffering, whether they're in the church or outside the church, we would go towards them, that we would hold up the very light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. would help people see the hope that is in you. Father, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. We see that your Son came and bore your wrath, that experienced the darkest of all nights. So that no matter what darkness we are going through, we know there is hope in it. For as you have used the cross to bring about salvation for all your people, you also use our dark nights for your glory and for
for your good. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.